Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRugger Personal Finance, Episode 109. And in this episode, we will continue on the topic of currency trading and discuss some sub-concepts within the topic. This is part two of the two-part series on currencies. Now, in this episode, we'll include subtopics such as exchange rates, currency pairs, the concept of pips, and how leverage works for forex trading and more. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims. The first one is to be educated. Improving your financial literacy is the number one aim of this podcast channel. And with improved financial literacy, you can be empowered to take that knowledge and take it to your credentialed advisor so you can speak at a level that both of you can understand. And the third thing is to be entertained. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make to your appropriate credentialed advisors. In other words, don't listen to some random guy for financial advice on the internet. But if you're stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money never to be touched ever again because you're the most important person in your life. Step two is invest that money, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. For me, I just invest in index funds because I understand the stock market and I understand index funds. Step three is reinvest dividends. With reinvestment of dividends, the power of compounding is phenomenal, particularly over the long term, which is then step four. When I say long term, I'm not talking seven, 10, or even 15 years. I'm talking minimum 20, 30, or even 40 plus years. The longer you do it, the better it is, which means the earlier you start, the better it is. And step five, my favorite, Wherever possible, try and automate your investments and do it forever. With automation, there is less chance and less risk for you to make any mistakes or simply forgetting to invest. If you do these simple five steps over the long term, you're more likely to end up with more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring you happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, improving the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before we go on to the subtopics of currency trading, I had a very interesting question from a GP registrar. Let's call them Dr. X. 
Hi Dev, I'm a senior GP registrar in my final year of training. During the last six months, I decided to take some time off training to do some locum work. As a result, it is likely this financial year I will make close to $250,000. The previous two financial years, that is financial year 2019 and 2020, I had a much lower income, approximately $105,000 per year. My current investments are, I have $50,000 in ETFs, $300,000 in cash, which I'm saving for a home, and $25,000 off super, which I want to maximize. Moving forward, I think I can save around $100,000 per year, as I have minimal expenses. My question is, how can I maximize my super contributions and take advantage of the carry forward rules? Dr. X, that is a great question, and it's something which is often forgotten by a lot of people. Now, the concept to learn here is called carry forward of super contributions rule. This applies to Australian listeners. Please check what your retirement account rules are in your respective country if you're from outside of Australia. Now, for Oz listeners, this rule, that is the carry forward rules, is completely different to the bring forward rules, which applies to non-concessional contributions. So please don't get confused between the two rules. They are very similarly named. Now, what is the unused super cap carry forward rules? It was actually designed to help people who may not have contributed to their super due to ad hoc work, maternity leave, or not having regular work or loss of income, or even due to illness, they were unable to work. So the rule exists to help people like this so they don't miss out on saving for their retirement. It's also very useful for those people that may have more disposable income later in life as their kids have grown up, which means less household expenses so they can live with lower cash flows and contribute more to their super. So it's a great rule. The second thing is we know that every financial year, we're allowed to contribute up to $25,000 of concessional contributions as a maximum. Now, there are some rules of unused super cap forward. What is it? Number one is you can only use the unused amounts from the 1st of July 2018. And if your super is worth less than $500,000 in the previous financial year, this is called the total super balance, the TSB. And this includes all of your super accounts, not just one. So if you have super that is worth more than $500,000, then you cannot use the unused super cap. That rule doesn't apply to you. And the third thing about this rule is that unused caps are allowed to be used within five years before it expires, with the oldest unused cap allowed to be used first. So in Dr. X's case, they earned around $105,000 in 2019 financial year and 2020 financial year. Now, assuming a 9.5% super on top of this, this means those years, they probably already received around $9,000 of super contributions. That'll be their concessional contributions each for those years, which means they have unused cap of about $15,000 for 2019 and $15,000 for 2020. I'm just sort of rounding it off so that it's not too complicated. It's actually 16,000, 
but I've used 15,000 because it's a not easy number to deal with. Which means the unused super contribution cap is now around $30,000, which they can you know, potentially carry forward. Now, in 2021 financial year, they can contribute a further 25K. So their total carry forward, if their total super balance is less than half a mil, is around $55,000, including for 2021 financial year. So their question is, should they contribute 55000 into their super before June 30th this year? Now, this all depends on if they need that money now or later in life. Uh, they haven't provided much information about whether they are a fire uh, doctor, that is, they want to fire early, which means they may want to have access to that money a little bit earlier than age of retirement. So assuming it's a traditional retirement, um, personally, contributing to super effectively means you get a tax break. The government says they will only tax super contributions at 15% of Dr. X's $55,000 of unused contributions cap, which equals around $8,025, uh, sorry, $8,250, which means up to $46,750 of their unused super cap that they contribute goes directly into their super and is working for them. Now, granted, any earnings on that is also future taxed at 15%, which is still pretty low. And even if they invested outside of super, it's not as if the dividends that they get are tax-free. So from a tax effectiveness point of view, it makes sense. Now, if they indeed earn $250,000 this year and didn't contribute anything to their super, their tax will be around 36% to 40%, depending on their deductions. So if they took the income into their bank account, instead of receiving $46,750 working for them, they will only get around $35,200. Now, greater flexibility is an important thing, remember, because when you contribute to super, you can't access it until retirement. It's very difficult to. Uh, whereas if you invest outside of super, you've got greater flexibility and there's potentially less legislative risk. Now, the choice then, in my view, in a very simplistic term, becomes of 15% tax if they contributed to their super versus around 36% tax if they didn't. Uh, now, to add a little bit more complexity, I mean, the Dr. X did mention that they're earning close to 250000 uh, In Australia, there is something called a Division 293 taxation rule, which they may be affected by. Because my understanding is, uh, and you need to check with your accountant or financial advisor about this, if you breach the $250,000 earnings, that if you earn more than that, you'll be hit with an additional 15% tax on top of the concessional contributions tax of 15%, because that's the Division 293 rule, that is additional tax. But even then, it still equates to only 30% tax compared to 36% tax had they received the money into their bank account. Now, these are some rough calculations. So I think from my basic understanding, um, contributing to super is fantastic. But of course, as always, I have advised Dr. X to consult their credentialed advisor before making any financial moves because they're in a pretty sweet spot at the moment. Um, and I happen to know they've got probably another 30, 35 years of earnings capacity before they, you know, finally retire at the age of 65 to 67. 
And finally, Dr. X, well done on having an aggressive savings rate and really thinking about how to maximize your superannuation. Now, superannuation is a marvelous system, and I encourage everyone to learn about it uh, to ensure that you maximize it. It is a legal way to build a significant retirement portfolio. Um, Sometimes we get so hung up about investments outside of super like ETFs and index funds and stock picking and active and passive trading, sometimes doing the basics like just maximizing your super is probably what most of us need to do um, because that is very tax effective. So I think this is a very useful reminder to go back and learn about superannuation, the ins and outs and the rules associated with it. And the concept here is called carry forward of super contributions rule which is different to the bring forward rules, which affects the non-concessional contributions. And I'm happy to talk about that in a different episode, but that is not the point of this question. So I hope this answers Dr. X's question. Now, coming back to the main topic about currency trading. Now, to summarize the concepts in the previous episode, which was part one, we talked about how currency is traded through brokers, We talked about spot trading versus derivatives trading very briefly. We talked about the decentralized nature of currency trading. We also discussed the 24-hour markets worldwide across three main time zones. And as a result of that, it makes it a way bigger market than stock market trading, you know, up to 5.1 trillion US dollars traded in the currency markets every 24 hours. And we briefly talked about leverage, but I'm going to touch on that again in this episode. We also briefly touched on PIPs, which is percentage and point system. Again, we'll talk about it in detail in this episode. And lastly, we talked about the lot sizes, the mini lots, the micro lots, and the standard lots. Now, in this episode, we'll tackle, obviously, the PIPs and leverage, etc. But we'll talk about exchanges. We'll talk about currency pairs. uh, We'll talk about leverage trades and the percentage and point system in a little bit more detail. So the question is, why does currency trading matter for business and investors? Well, it's important because if you want to invest in foreign assets, you need to know their value and how your investment may increase or decrease in value based on the currency prices. So let's use a very, very basic example to highlight this point. Now, supposing one US dollar is worth $1.25 Australian dollars. So if you're an Australian investor investing in the American market, then if the AUD reaches parity within the US markets, within the USD, it means you get more value for your money. Then if the USD rises in value, this is good for you. That is, you enter the market when the AUD is strong, but you exit the market when the the USD is strong, which means you get more AUD when you sell your US assets. So it's an important concept to understand why currency trading matters for businesses and investors because they can leverage the different values of the currencies in order to make money and in order to sell their assets and make money and convert into their local currency. So what are exchanges and what are exchange rates? Now, there are two ways a currency can be valued. The first way is the fixed or pegged to another currency way. And the second way is called the free floating currency. So what is a floated currency? This is when the governments allow the trading of currencies in the open market. This means when a particular currency is in high demand, its value goes up. And likewise, 
If that currency is in low demand, that is high supply, its value goes down. So that's a pretty easy concept to understand, supply and demand. This is no different to that supply and demand economics. So what is a pegged or fixed currency? Now, this is when governments will peg their own currency with another currency, which is usually floated. So the other currency, which it's pegged against, or pegged with, sorry, is a floated currency. Now, for example, the USD seems to be the primary currency, which some other currencies are pegged with. Examples are currencies from Hong Kong, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Panama, UAE, and more. Now, the most common way a currency is traded is via the flea freight mechanism. That is the most common way that currencies are traded in the markets. It does not mean, though, that governments won't act to manipulate their own currency, even if it's floated. It is in the best interest of some governments to devalue their currency. For example, China has been accused of purposely devaluing its currency since the 1990s, ever since it's becoming a manufacturing prowess. And the reason for that is they want to keep manufacturing and labour cost as low as possible in their economy, which means more jobs are lost from higher paid countries to China. And that's been a real controversy over the last 30 years. Now, the reason why it's controversial is that China has become so much more developed in the last 30 years. And this means technically foreign investment has increased significantly into China. And this means people will seek to buy more and more renminbi because it's a, you know, almost a developed economy. So the demand for that currency is going to rise, which is their local currency. The renminbi is their local currency. So due to high demand, technically the renminbi should appreciate in value. We talked about supply and demand economics, but the government may be putting efforts into making this an impossible task, to making sure that it doesn't happen. Now, if the Chinese renminbi becomes on par with USD, everything in China will be crazy expensive. And this has a huge trade, labour, economic implications for China. So there is suspicion, and pretty widely known now, that they devalue their currency. Now, before I get sidetracked too much, why is devaluing a currency a good strategy for some countries? In some countries, it makes sense for them. Why? Number one is when products get exported from those countries, they get paid in their foreign currency, which converts to more local currency. So if I'm an exporter from the Philippines, then I'm exporting to Australia. If the AUD is strong against the Philippines currency, then when I pay in AUD, they'll get more of their local currency, which is good for them. Number two is investing in a low currency countries is far more attractive for people coming from high currency value countries. So if I want to create a business and if my Australian dollar travels further in India or China, I'm more likely to invest there than in Australia. Now, that's an obvious controversy because if I'm the Indian government or the Chinese government, I want more foreign investment. So I will do all sorts of things to attract foreign investments from the US from Europe and Australia, New Zealand, etc. Number three is more investment from foreigners means more businesses, which equates to more employment for the local labour. Number four is imports going into low currency countries becomes more expensive. And this is why in India, iPhones, which are imported, 
don't sell very well. It's just too expensive, which means cheaper options like the Oppo brand and other local brands sell very, very well. Now, it also means that the the fifth thing is that it protects against imported goods, so which is kind of like the iPhone story, as imports become more expensive. So in India, the iPhone is so expensive and therefore people are going to buy the local products, so the local products are more protected and that might be one of the reasons why you know the Indian government, if they're doing it, may devalue their currency on purpose. It's just an example. It's a hypothetical. I don't know if they do that. There are some suspicions, but who knows? But that's what I would do if I wanted to take advantage of the currency markets from a governmental level. Now, what are the disadvantages of devaluing one's own currency? So with any advantage, there's always a disadvantage. Number one is there's less competition from overseas imports, which means potentially poorer quality products. Now, because the local people may be relying on local products more than overseas competition. And we know that competition breeds success and better quality products. Now, this was kind of true for Australian-made cars. Think about what happened, you know, 20 years ago when we had a local car industry. Australian car industries was protected, not so much by currency devaluing it, but protections imposed by the Australian government by tariffs for overseas imports. And this meant that overseas imported cars cost way more money, which ironically is still the case despite Australia not really having a local car manufacturing industry. Go figure. Now, this just means that Australian-made cars were much cheaper compared to some of their better quality European-made cars. Now, enter Trigger for Holden and Ford fans. So... Yes, there are some disadvantages of devaluing one's own currency or having protectionist policies for the local markets. So coming back to exchange rates, what influences exchange rates? Now, if the demand for a currency increases, then its value increases. Now, that's pretty straightforward. So, for example, if the demand for AUD increases in America, then the currency pair AUD-USD will reflect a higher value to AUD in relation to the USD simple. Now, what causes demand for a currency then? Now, there are five main reasons that affect the demand for currency. So let's go through them individually. And I'm going to go through it quite slowly and methodically so that it kind of all ties in. The first one is interest rate changes affect demand. If a country has higher interest rates, this promotes foreigners to invest more in that country because they get more return for their money. And this drives up the currency value. So let's use an example. If the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, decides to increase interest rates tomorrow to 5%, currently it's 0.25%, I think, then investors from around the world will look to Australia to invest more of their money. This means converting their local currency to AUD, which can drive up the price of AUD. So interest rates can change the demand for a currency. Number two is unemployment. The lower the unemployment, the falling exchange rate. So why does this happen? Let's use an example. If you have a very low unemployment rate, this means there is little liquidity in labour markets. Now, I've discussed the concept of liquidity in episode 84. If you're interested, go back and listen to it. 
And this means there is less people to go around to work, which means I need to pay more for labour to attract workers. And this means to compensate, I need to increase prices of my products to still make a profit. Because if I'm paying more for labour, it's going to cost me more to make the product, which means I need to inflate the prices in order to make a profit. And this leads to inflation. Now, I've talked about inflation in episode 27. What is inflation and why is it important? So go back and listen to that if you're interested. So this affects the purchasing power of the currency. It reduces the purchasing power of the currency. Um, And this means due to inflation, the currency rate falls. Now, you can now understand why governments may step in to steady the ship when it comes to their local currency price value. So when these sort of things happen, the governments may kind of step in and say, well, hang on, this is not the trajectory that we want the currency value to go under. The third thing is gross domestic product or GDP. There are three ways GDP affects exchange rates. The first way is if GDP rises, currency worth also rises. And if the GDP falls, then currency worth also falls. And the second thing is, depending on the country's GDP, it affects how investors see the country as an investment opportunity. Now, we mentioned if more investors are interested, they will drive up currency price of that country. And the third thing is reserve banks. That is, if they decide their interest rate based on the GDP as well, which goes back to the original thing that I said about interest rates, that can affect the demand for a particular currency. Number four is manufacturing data. So how does that affect it? When exchange rates go up, then local manufacturing may go down in the home country. And this is because exports from the home country now becomes more expensive. And this thereby affects demand for the home country's currency, then thus becoming a cycle. So if the AUD rises in value and demand, that means the local manufacturing industry may reduce because we're not going to be exporting as much products because people aren't going to buy Australian-made products because it's just so expensive. And as a result, that drives down the demand for the home country's currency, which then becomes a cycle because then it drives down manufacturing. Number five, the last one is How does commodities like oil, gold, iron ore, coal affect the exchange rate? Now, when prices of commodities go down, then the home currency exchange rate will also go down. Now, this is especially true if the home country relies on its commodities for its economic rise. Now, this is particularly true in the Australian economy. We export a lot of gold and minerals. And when gold prices go up, that is at times of volatility because people seek gold as a secure investment during periods of volatility, that's why one of the reasons why gold prices goes up in periods of volatility, then the AUD exchange rate has also gone up. That is, the AUD becomes more expensive to buy. This phenomenon was also true in Canada, when um, Canada is actually a net exporter of oil, which means when the oil prices go up, the Canadian dollar price also rises. So those are the five reasons you know, why, uh, you know, currency exchange rates uh, may be affected um, as a result of, uh, you know, all these things. Now, that's about it for currency exchanges and how they get impacted on various economic data. The next concept within this episode is currency pairing. 
Now, the unique thing about currency trading is when you buy one currency, you're automatically selling another currency. This is very unlike the stock market where you can just get the Apple stock or the Tesla stock. So currencies are traded in pairs, where the base currency is compared in value to the quoted currency. Now, the base currency is the first currency and the quoted currency is the second currency. So when you read those signs when you go to the airports, the first currency is the base currency and the next currency is the quoted currency. And the currencies are identified by international standards by three capital letters. So the AUD is for Australian dollar, the USD is for US dollar, the INR is the Indian rupee, not the international normalised ratio, which is a measure of warfare and effectiveness for you medical geeks out there. And when an order is placed, the base currency is bought and the quote currency is sold. That's how it works. Now, when trading currency pairs, there is something called a bid price or the buy price and an ask price, which is a sell price. So the bid price represents how much of the quote currency you will need to get one unit of the base currency. This is getting really technical and really geeky, but I think it's important to understand so that you can sort of try and visualize and conceptualize it. Let's use an example to understand the concept of currency pairs. Now, if you have a currency pair such as US dollar AUD, one is to $1.25, this means one US dollar can be exchanged for $1.25 AUD, or you will get $1.25 of AUD to buy one US dollar. The US dollar in this case is the base currency, and the AUD is the quote currency. Now, the most liquid currency pair in the world is traded as Euro US dollar. That's the most popular liquid currency around. Generally speaking, the more liquid a currency pair is, that is loads of trading and availability, the spread between the buy and sell price is very narrow and the margins are also very narrow. And these pairs are called major currency pairs. Now, what is a minor currency pair? A minor currency pair is also called an exotic currency pair. And this is when two currencies are not frequently traded. And this is usually found in emerging markets. For example, the Indian rupee against the Mexican peso. It's not a very common trading currency pair. This means the liquidity is lower, which means the buy-sell spread is going to be a big wider. So let's use an analogy to try and understand the buy-sell spreads, which I've discussed briefly in my liquidity episodes before. Imagine you're trying to sell your home and the market price for the home is around 500000 That's the bid price. But you're asking for 600000 That's your sale price. There is a wide gap between the bid and ask price and this means you're not very likely to sell the home. But if you compromised on your ask price to say $510,000, you're more likely to sell the home. This is called the spread. The larger the spread, the less likely you're going to sell the home, which means there's less liquidity in the market. Now, of course, liquidity also is affected by supply and demand of properties in your area. Um, but that gives you a bit of an analogy about the liquidity aspect and the buy-sell aspect, buy-sell spread aspect, sorry, of the property market. 
Now, the next concept we need to really discuss is called the PIPs, which is, uh, I briefly touched on this in the last episode, but didn't go too much into it. So what is a PIP? A PIP is a percentage in point or price interest point. This is yet another point system, which is different to the stock market or interest rates. And if you want to learn more about those systems, um, go back and listen to episode 103, where I talk about the stock market points and the percentage points system. Um, This is slightly different. This is only in currency trading. And the reason why the PIP exists is that the currency trading markets, uh, they tend to happen in fractions of a cent um, or whatever the unit price is of the local currency. So they're priced out to the fourth decimal point. So a PIP or a PIP is one basis point of that fourth decimal point. So in other words, one PIP is one one hundredth of 1%. So in other words, one pip is 0.01 multiplied by 0.01, which is 0.0001. This is the smallest move a currency can make. Now bear with me here, because this is going to make sense in a moment. So a bid-ask price is measured in pips. And the only currency which kind of doesn't follow this rule is the Japanese yen. And I've got no idea why, presumably because of the value of their currency, I'm not sure. But their pip is priced as 1 100th multiplied by their exchange rate. So let's not talk about the Japanese yen because it just confuses me. Let's use an example to highlight the pip system using the USD AUD currency pip. Suppose you want to track the USD AUD currency pip. And the exchange rate is a dollar to dollar twenty five, one five. So that is one US dollar buys you one point two five one five Aussie dollars. You trade one hundred US dollars to get one hundred and twenty five dollars and twenty five cents AUD. Now this is a little bit unrealistic because I haven't used any buy sell spread commissions into this, but I want to keep it as simple as possible. Supposing the AUD appreciates now. And the exchange rate is one US dollar to one dollar twenty five ten. That is one point two five one zero. So the AUD previously, remember, was one point two five one five, but now it's appreciated to one point two five one zero. Now, suppose you want to exit this trade and convert back to USD because now the AUD is appreciating, then you only need to spend one hundred and twenty five dollars and ten cents to get the same 100 US dollars. Therefore, the pips you've just made on the trade is five pips. That is 1.2515 AUD minus 1.2515. I think I've done my calculations right, which works out to be 0.0005 cents per AUD traded. Now, this may sound like a small amount, but extrapolate this to millions of dollars, then you can see how currency trading can make a lot of money. But it's very, very risky, and I certainly don't trade currencies. So let's extrapolate to the sake for this example to a much larger figure. Supposing you traded $10 million on that trade, not just 100 bucks. Then if you made five pips per $1, that is a profit of $5,000, 
which you could have potentially made in an instant as markets move very quickly in the currency markets. So even though pips are very small amounts, because the volume of trading is so large, the amount of money we're talking about is so large, you can make a lot of money in currency trading if you know what you're doing. Now that brings to the next topic of leverage when it comes to currency trading. Now, I've covered leverage extensively in previous episodes, episode 49. If you're interested, go back and listen to that. One of the reasons some traders like to trade currencies is the fact that they can use leverage to amplify their returns. Like any leverage trading, amplification can work both ways. That is, you can make loads of money with amplification, uh, with leverage. You can actually lose loads of money with leverage as well. So how does leverage work in Forex trading? You can borrow money from the broker. And remember, when trading currencies, you can do so with micro lots, which is 1,000 units, mini lots, which is 10,000 units, and standard lots, which is 100,000 units. And traditionally, when using margin, you can leverage up based on the amount of capital you put up. So for example, if you put up $1,000, then you can ask the broker to lend you some money as well. And you might want to ask the broker to lend you $1,000. And that's called a one-is-to-one margin. That's what kind of happens in the stock market. You can do one is to two if you wanted to. In the Forex market, this is amplified even further because the spreads are so fine. You need to be able to play with borrowed money, huge sums of money, in order to improve your gains. So in the Forex market, it's actually not unusual to have one is to 100 leverage ratio. This just means for every dollar in your account, you can trade up to $100 in value. So think about that. When you do leverage trading in the stock market, you know, it could be one is to one or one is to two. Whereas in the Forex market, you can potentially go one is to 100. Um, And I've read sometimes people go one is to 250. So for every dollar, you can trade up to 250 bucks. Like all things, leverage is a double-edged sword, so use it very carefully. And generally speaking, I don't borrow money to invest in shares. I don't like debt. I don't borrow money to invest in the stock market, and I don't trade currencies. That's about it for this episode. We've covered the key concepts from currency trading-wise, exchange rates, currency pairs, pips, and leverage forex trading. And we also covered Dr. X's question about the carry forward rules, which is different to the bring forward rules. So it's important for you to know the difference. Please make sure you give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or any podcasting app you're using. It really does help promote the podcast so more people can download and listen to it. And it certainly helps the algorithm so more people can find the podcast for the first time. And if you really want, leave a review too and I might read it out live in one of the future episodes. Remember to like the DevRaga Facebook page, shout out to questions, comments, or topic suggestions. Share this channel with family and friends, Apple Podcast, Anchor App, CastBox, Spotify, Google, I'm everywhere. And remember, always pay yourself first, take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. And learn about currency trading and be careful as it's a very volatile, risky approach, especially with leverage, and only people that know what they're doing should trade currencies. Remember the philosophy, invest the 
in things that you understand or want to understand in. But the important thing is understand it before you start investing. This is DevRock Personal Finance episode 109. As always, please make sure you stay safe.